0: to Season 6 of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across oceans, and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn brew. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AcuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AcuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever else gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer up your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to accubrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you.
1: (laughs) Owning the property is going to be what ends up giving us the ability to walk away with a little bit of money at the end of the day. But it's also as the neighborhood exploded in popularity and development, it's our
0: Property taxes. Zach Rabin opened Mockery Brewing in Denver's ubiquitous Rhino District long before it was cool. Most of you know that it's now become one of the best-known beer destinations in the States. After working at Coors and Denver-area pubs, he set a concise theme for his new brewery. First, take a detailed, educated look at traditional beer styles and rules, and then make a mockery of them. This kind of contrarian thinking creates great art and great experiences for the consumer. But, as we hear a lot on this show... Nietzsche's gets stitches, and there's not an obvious pathway to profitability with this model. So Zach's about to walk us through his crappier story, where his inspiration came from and how it felt to finally let his brewery go after fighting for it for years. And he'll hint at what might be next. So plug in, zone out, and get ready for the story of Denver's late mockery brewing. All right, Zach, welcome to the show. We have a lot to go over today, and you have a very interesting story and some unique and different background that I'm looking very forward to getting into. So thank you for taking the time to sit down with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, at, at this point, you guys are closed, right? You closed like a week or two ago?
1: Yeah, yeah. Our uh, final party was on uh, the 12th of this month, so yeah, about two weeks ago.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that in the closing announcements. I thought those were fun too, but we'll foreshadow that for a third segment. But let's spend a little time just talking about kind of how this came up. I do want to talk about your resume because it is different and unique than most of the guests that I've had on the show, but even before that, like, who were you before you were beer? Let's talk about that.
1: Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I forgot. Grew, up in, yeah, grew up in Colorado, Just bounced around a little bit out to California, but uh, especially as uh, my wife and I um, were looking to set down roots, you know, we kind of always figured we'd be back here. And uh, so, yeah, I uh, went through high school in kind of suburbs outside of Denver and uh, then up to, Older for University of Colorado, which, uh, you know, was typical college experience. I went in not having any clue what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be and uh, had a good time being a student, but <laughs> with no direction. So I kind of burned away my time up there, graduating from business school with a marketing and accounting degree, but kind of got to the point of graduation and was like, well, I don't want to do marketing or accounting, so I don't know what I was doing. But um, was home brewing at the time and got a job with Coors and was more or less driving a forklift around for them for a couple of years and was you know always angling at working towards being on the brewing team there and after about three years there kind of got the opportunity to start training and move that way and had another friend that was on the brewing team and kind of got to talk to them more about the job and kind of realized pretty quickly that it wasn't the type of brewing I wanted to do. Uh, You know, it was keeping one part of the big machine within its small parameters. And, uh, you know, coming from home brewing, uh, I I, I like to get my hands in the mash and do uh, a little bit more of the artistic side of brewing uh, that, you know, obviously wasn't going to happen at So, you know, it took some time to kind of reassess. And, you know, as I got offered the job, I thought I was working toward for years. Instead, quit and uh, started applying to smaller microbreweries in the area at the time. This was, let's see, back in like 2009. I left Coors. Got a job with Elk Mountain Brewing down in Parker, which they're no longer around, but, you know, they were willing to Give a kid with just homebrew experience a job, and so yeah, started working there and spent about two years there before I was made the head brewer. But it was still kind of fighting the same battles of not doing the brewing I wanted to do. You know, back then Parker was about forty miles south of Denver, and was a very kind of cowboy farmer agriculture town that presented a lot of challenges to a microbrewery. We had a lot of Customers walking in asking for a jack and the bud I had to kind of explain to them that, you know, the only beer we served was what was made on site. And craft beer was pretty well established at that point, but especially in that setting, it was still kind of a novelty thing to do. Uh, any big flavors or any real experimental beers, there just wasn't enough of a craft scene down there uh, with just a lot of kind of old-timey farmers. And so even doing... a fruited beer or any anything outside of uh, Pilsner, you know, something that really mimicked the macro lagers took a lot of, you know, kind of handholding and education and trying to just get people to taste the beers. Still wasn't, yeah, doing the kind of artistic, really fun, experimental brewing that I wanted to be doing. So I was kind of trying to look for the next opportunity and uh, actually got, uh, you know, through a whole string of Weird events, pushed in a different direction, got run over on my motorcycle and was oh. laid up, had kind of the good year to put myself back together and spent a lot of time contemplating what I wanted to be doing and where I wanted to do it. And with the little bit of money I had left over after settling insurance and everything, I was like, well, we're going to, you know, instead of constantly getting jobs that were close to what I wanted to be doing, we decided to just go for it and uh, try and open up our own space. So the the last thing I wanted to do was just make sure I was doing all my due diligence and had uh, all my kind of bona fides in line. And so I went out to Chicago and the Siebel Institute, did their brewing program, um, which back then was uh, one of maybe three or four programs that were available in the United States as far as uh, any kind of. Brewing education went. That was a lot tougher than it is now since then. It's the fermentation sciences and brewing programs have uh, proliferated, and now there's, I think, two or three in-state, which is pretty great. But yeah, back then, uh, you know, it was either UC Berkeley or Siebel or a couple other options, but not a whole lot of brewing-specific education programs out there. So... Spent my time out in chicago and then you know really got to work on the business
0: plan and started looking for a location for mockery like i said it was an interesting aspect of it that you had worked in a one of the largest breweries in the country you worked in a small brewery and then you also went to college basically and got some education and that even still we're still having this conversation which again we're going to foreshadow to but i think that was the right start you've got the experience um but what at that point you start building your business model your business plan, what were you going to do different? Or why did your brewery need to exist, I guess, in the marketplace of especially a crowded one like Denver?
1: It was a a lot of the experiences uh, I had had at that point, going from, like you said, the giant machine that is Coors and getting to see how that operated. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, I really enjoyed my time at Coors. They were a phenomenal company to work for. And uh, I've never been paid appreciated or had benefits like that since then. So uh, I, I really appreciated my time there, but I wanted to actually be brewing and not part of an assembly line, more or less, you know, that led me into the microbrewery, but then they didn't kind of have the community or support to do the type of brewing I wanted. So it was still very simple brewing. You know, we had six to eight beers on with, you know, Pilsner, Cole, Hellis pale, some very light, approachable options, but uh, a lot of my passion still laid in the more experimental, flavor-forward, exciting. I would say beers, especially at that time in craft brewing, it seemed like sour beer was really just getting started and kicking off, and that was really exciting to see something kind of so far out of the normal mold of what was available on the market to start to see success. So. We knew that coming off of those experiences that if, yeah, we're going to do our own place, we're going to focus on those outside of the norm beers and uh, techniques and methods and ingredients. But in order to do that, we had to be in a community that had a, a large enough base of beer drinkers and craft beer enthusiasts that you could do those weird beers and there'd still be enough people willing to try them and come by and uh, kind of experiment alongside us. We knew we wanted to be more or less in pretty close to downtown Denver to have enough base to support the artistic side and the experimental side of the brewery. And uh, so we yeah, started looking uh, all over the city and kind of there's a main drag Broadway that runs through the city. And we were looking up and down Broadway for uh, a handful of months for a location. And as we kept working kind of towards the north, East side of the city it was a very industrial old part of the city that I, uh, you know, probably had its boom days back in the you know 50s, 60s with a lot of heavy industrial infrastructure in the neighborhood, and that had all kind of dried up, been abandoned years and years ago. So it was a it was a pretty rough part of town. You know, having grown up in the area, this kind of neighborhood was known as the Five Points area and was just a hard, rough part of town that. You wouldn't see a lot of foot traffic on a Saturday night unless you were out looking for trouble. So <laughs> the real estate was very affordable and had lots of good warehouse space. And uh, as you know, we were trying writing out the business plan and looking for a, a location. We were competing heavily against a lot of dispensaries that were looking for property right at that time, as that was just coming online. And, uh, you know, it was hard to find what you would typically think of as like a tap room space, lots of warehousey kind of concrete floors, cheap real estate, lots of setup they were looking for as well. So it got kind of competitive and pricey uh, in the areas we were originally looking. But as we moved up into the kind of rougher, traditionally, parts of the city it became a lot more affordable. And uh, we started going to a lot of the city planning meetings and uh, I heard that the city and the kind of public funds were going to start moving into the neighborhoods up here and putting a little bit more infrastructure and uh, a little bit more investment into these neighborhoods. And so we had at least a little bit more uh, confidence, saying, "Well, it's really rough right now, but hopefully in the future it's at least pointing in the right direction towards it getting better and not worse." So we felt comfortable moving into the rougher neighborhood with. Uh, the more affordable properties Cause as we building out the business plan we also i wrote in that i really wanted to uh, own the property we were going to be at we, i had friends and other colleagues in the industry that had gone through nightmare situations of having leases tripled or more it would come when their uh, lease was up and they couldn't afford that or their leases just weren't available for renewal at some point and they were more or less kicked out of their property and With the infrastructure, uh, we knew that was going to have to be put into a building to make it a brewery Um, and all the tanks and everything else. The thought of moving seemed like an absolute nightmare to me. And so I knew I didn't want to have to deal with that somewhere down the road. And so we had very purposely written into the business plan that um, we wanted to own the property uh, we were going to be on. And so that definitely, you know, was a huge factor in where we were going to be located basically what we could afford and got really lucky just moving into this neighborhood and kind of doing our part to make sure we were set up going to be somewhere where we could afford but it was uh, hopefully going to approve and appreciate and uh, man we could not have seen the growth that uh we've experienced by any stretch of the imagination i mean the city's done a good job of coordinating a lot of the growth around here but the private side and the development that's gone on is absolutely mind-blowing. There's not a square foot of property, it seems like, in the neighborhood that hasn't been totally repurposed and redeveloped uh, in the time that we've been here. And It's gone from a really rough, underdeveloped, forgotten, abandoned neighborhood to one of the booming parts of the city that looks completely different than it did 10 years ago.
0: That's the the Rhino?
1: Yeah, yeah. Rhino, River North area. incredible that as denver was growing uh this kind of area was left unattended and uh, neglected incredibly we're about a mile mile and a half from you know the football stadium and the kind of very center of downtown so really you know a part of downtown denver which draw a circle from the epicenter of denver and it was the one part that didn't makes sense everywhere else was really well developed and booming and for its proximity you know fell overdue it is incredible to see uh how, how it's changed and what it's turned into there's been such huge developments great divide built a 20 plus million dollar brewery right across the street blue moon came down the street and built out a, another huge project it's really really did a great job so it's, it's a great facility i'm you know big city parks and music venues and everything else has since moved into the neighborhood that really feels like it's just a whole different area we uh, this is kind of a funny anecdote that uh when we moved in our neighbor was doggy daycare (laughs) business we were in demolition and construction build out the brewery and, and you know we had a girl running down the street the other day and i grabbed my bat from behind the counter and ran out and you said you know who's chasing you what's going on and said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm out for a jog. And he said, not in this neighborhood. you're not. If you're running in this neighborhood, someone's chasing you. So, uh, you know, to come from that to where it is now is uh, pretty incredible.
0: Yeah. So obviously being part of that restoration is, is helpful. And you picked an area that you could say you saw it coming. You could say you got lucky. It doesn't make a difference. The point being you were able to purchase the land and you were able to take advantage of that appreciation. I'm curious because most people would choose to own the building if they could, and most people can't own the building, particularly today versus 2014. Absolutely. But what kind of roadblocks did that present at the time? Did it make it harder for you to get money, get loans, or did it actually make it easier?
1: Um, We were incredibly lucky in the sense that we had some money. We never had to... Really go outside for investment. The ownership group is myself and my wife and her two siblings. We've been able to fund everything ourselves. We kind of started off with, okay, how much we want to throw at this venture and how much we have to invest and kind of came up with a budget and then, you know, started building off of that. And uh, I had, you know, my brewery experience. So I knew how to set up a brewery, what it would take, what pieces of equipment, what size I wanted. I had all that pretty nailed down and the budget for that. So that left us with the piece of getting the property and then what it would take to develop that into a brewery. So we had pretty solid numbers to work off of. And I in our original business plan, I had, you know, ideal square footage and utilities and everything that you would find in, you know, your typical how to open a brewery guide and, you know, what you need to... Do the budget, especially with yeah, our piece of kind of having to own our property was uh, you know the big fluid piece. So we ended up uh, with this building and property, which was about half the square footage of kind of the main building we wanted. Uh, we're in a 2,500 square foot building. I think uh, the business plan originally called for 5,000 plus square feet, but uh, it did come with a uh, large outdoor patio and kind of a detached secondary building, which I knew would I you know, everybody always needs more space. So um, you know, we had kind of built in storage and big patio space, which uh especially in Denver with all the good weather and sun we get is kind of a necessary for a taproom space. And uh so we we just decided to make it work and squeeze stuff in as tight as we could get, which again, yeah, luckily having been in a handful of breweries and seeing different ways things could be done. I uh, was able to uh, lay out our production space pretty tight and uh, efficiently so that we could save as much space as we could for tap room and the kind of revenue generating side of the business. It's
0: always a question people have when they're starting up. Is this, do you find a building first and then figure out what you can fit in it? Do you figure out what your... Number of seats in your tasting room needs to be, in and then find the building. Do you decide on your brew house, and then based on the distribution versus on-site model? So for you, sounds like you had kind of the brewing operations locked out as far as what you wanted, the system that size that you wanted, and then that drove the location. Is that kind of how it worked out?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I was uh, just a hardcore craft beer nerd back then, and been in. Hundreds of different taprooms all over the country and uh, had picked little pieces of stuff that I saw or liked along the way. But especially back then, you could get away with being on the edge of a city in a heavy industrial part of town. It seemed like, you know, whenever it was kind of an inside joke, uh, whenever my wife and I were traveling, you know, we'd always have to go check out the local beer scene, regardless where we were. And uh, more often than not, that meant driving to some sketchy part of town. And as soon as you were around the train tracks and some uh, shuttered, you know, old brick buildings, you know, you were getting close. So, you know, I think there was enough interest and support for the industry back then that you could get away with a less desirable location as long as you were putting out the quality to demand people come out to you. So we knew that we didn't have to be on the prime corner in downtown across from, you know, eight other perfect locations that got huge foot traffic. We knew we could be out in a less desirable area and still get people to come out to us as long as we were giving them enough of a reason to come out. And I I would say that is probably less applicable nowadays with the proliferation of breweries. And I just, other Things to grab your wallet and grab your attention. Uh, I think location is more important now than it was back then. But we had just been grabbing ideas and bits and pieces from hundreds of different tap rooms all over the place of what we liked and didn't like or what we thought worked and didn't work. And we wanted kind of a minimalist, uh, let the beer do the heavy lifting, got into a metal frame building that we just took them to the skin of the walls and built back in, but um, had a good team of people working with us to kind of help us along that way. And gave us some good kind of direction and tips and put us in touch with the right people. But really, we're able to do everything the way we wanted and have some really fun uh, little features and aspects and uh, personality sprinkles in where we wanted
0: and build out the space with all those different little pieces we had picked up along the way and I messed up a lot of them, but then a lot of people have done the same thing is, I guess when you're tasting, room, sort of an afterthought in the sense that you fit it as much as you can. Uh, when I went back years later to work the numbers and figure out what my revenue per hour could be kind of what my capacity was, I guess, as far as like number of seats I had, the number of people I could conceivably fit, how quickly they could drink and at what rate, what, the, what I could reasonably expect for a maximum total volume at the tasting room. I found out after doing that that there was absolutely no fucking way on the face of the earth that I could be profitable <laughs> because I didn't have seats and it just didn't make I, sense. I,
1: we made a, a similar, yeah, I mean, it seemed like we were mapping out and doing everything right, uh, working towards opening and, you know, we got a smaller space than we ideally would have liked, but we did get the piece of owning it. So we were happy with that. But yeah, it, it's very much like you said, probably didn't do enough kind of feasibility studies to say, well, we actually did need that space that was in the business plan. And yeah, we can seat maybe 30 people in the tap room, uh, maybe another 50 out on the patio. But what I didn't think about was how much we'd be turning away during any kind of inclement weather, whether it's just too hot, it's rainy, it's snowing with most of our seating being outdoor and with a smaller tap room we we can make sense out of it financially but we were turning away a lot of opportunity by putting a very low ceiling on the amount of people we could have indoors and uh, that's pretty itself out over the years of missing on some opportunities to bring in larger groups and events and stuff like that so um yeah i mean retro Effectively looking at it like you said the dollars per hour I could turn per seat and
0: uh, would have realized yeah more seats would have been beneficial so in your defense I think that I primarily interview you know the smaller guys and when you look at some of the bigger houses you know they're they have enough seats to really kill it from you know five to 9 p.m but then from 11 to three, they may have too many seats and they're paying for those seats for rent and utilities. And I don't, so I don't know exactly what the perfect model is, but I I do know that 30 seats is not right. I kind of experienced the same thing. So
1: we kind of talked ourselves into it because I did always want a very tap room centric model. I never had dreams of growing it to be a large national distributor or anything even remotely close to that. I wanted to run a tap room and focus on just the beers that were on tap and you know nothing really outside of the building if I didn't have to we really like the idea of kind of the intimate setting that a smaller tap room would provide and um, yeah when like you said when you go into you know the really big breweries that have hundreds of seats and If it's even, you know, a a little bit of an off timer, it it isn't a more empty room. It has a very different feel. Ten people in a small room versus ten people in a big room. I I like the more intimate setting. So we kind of had talked ourselves into, well, we can still make it work. But financially, it it was a hamper in the long run.
0: Yeah, well, take some solace in the fact that at least you're not alone. (laughs) um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's take a quick break when we come back i'd like to hear kind of the startup part as far as you know opening day and and how you grew and i had read some some articles and some different things about how uh, your beer was very well received and i admittedly haven't had a chance to taste it but you have and so i'm gonna ask make your opinions and uh we'll kind of go from there so let's take a quick break we'll be right back All right, I appreciate you sticking in. So we're we're getting closer and closer to the, the meat and potatoes what we came to talk about. But one question on the startup piece that I think I forgot to ask was what size system did you put in?
1: Uh, we opened with a fifteen barrel premier stainless yeah. two vessel system.
0: Fifteen's what I had to. I think it hey, is some good and bad things to it, but on mine um, I was able to do half batches, so you know, seven barrels, if, if you can't sell seven barrels, it's something you shouldn't make, it. so uh, I think that's a good...
1: Hey, yeah, yeah, I mean uh, yeah, I would say 90 plus percent of the batches we did were the fill 15, but uh, yeah, it was it, we stepped it down, you know, especially for either the stupid expensive beers or knowing that there's not a ton of people that are going to want a mushroom Schwartz beer, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we can uh, probably do seven barrels of that.
0: I read that on your opening day, you had nine beers on tap, and that is definitely not normal. Though Most people will try that, but I've, I've seen breweries open with zero of their own beers on tap. So describe that opening day. Like, How did you build up to that? Did you give yourself, as a brewer, I assume you knew how much, how much tank time you needed and lead time before opening, but walk us through that from the perspective of someone who did it right.
1: Having come off of worked at a couple of small breweries, I knew that that I wanted to definitely be involved in the production and brewing side of the business as much as possible. That's kind of what got me into all this. That's where my passion lied. I didn't want to sit at a computer and do the the hard work part you of it. Could, I you can't be an accountant if you want to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, uh, that just wasn't in me. So, but I also knew that I, I, I was going to have other responsibilities and other things to do. So, One of the first things that we knew we wanted to do opening up was get another very competent and uh, capable person back on production with me. We had, I think, put out, you know, like a pro brewer ad for a brewer and we're offering, uh, I would say, above market uh, money to try and recruit somebody that really had some chops and knew what they were doing. And I could feel comfortable handing off, you know, especially some of these more technical or uh, challenging beers to somebody and not have to worry about me not personally looking over the shoulder or handling stuff and be able to walk away from beers as need be. And so we ended up finding a brewer from uh, California, Justin Burns said, uh, who went through the UC Davis program and had been working at a small brewery out there. Uh, My wife and I flew out to California to the brewery he was working at and got to try the beers he was making and meet with him. And it was a good fit. He was making great beers and was excited about kind of the direction we were going in the more artsy, weird, experimental style. So he was very into that. So we brought him out uh, about six months before we opened to let them get settled in and start work on some recipes after having kind of laid out our initial offerings, we got to work and you know, we're brewing a little bit before we had all of our licenses and permits done, but uh, we're able to, you know, fill up tanks
0: and uh, get ready for that opening day. One question I had is that I I saw an early article that was written that said basically, you know, the concept of mockery was that you were going to have, sort of like four or so normal German beer law, I guess ones that follow that. And then the whole point, is you're <coughs> going to make a mockery of those and just, you know, screw around and have some fun. So how did you guys pick the lineup? Obviously, I'm sure you were involved and I'm sure that he had opinions and you kind of met in the middle, but that's definitely something that a lot of brewery owners I work with uh, struggle with is, is how, to, how to have those conversations where both people win and feel like they're artistically being represented, <coughs> but at the same time, the business has a standpoint, right? So- How did that work for you?
1: For better or for worse, it's pretty easy. You know, I've always kind of run this place as a passionate brewer and not necessarily a savvy businessman. So we always collaborated kind of from the ground up. He had brought a handful of recipes that he really liked with him, And I had some that I really liked made up probably about four or five of our kind of opening beers. And then... Once we kind of had that laid out, you know, we just said, okay, well, I want a good spread. I want light, dark, hoppy, fruity, you know, kind of have a, a, a good representation of all the, the spectrum of beer that you could have with eight beers and get a little bit of uh, weird and fun in there. And yeah, we had kind of, a, <laughs> I remember, yeah, I was trying to formulate more of a, persistent business strategy kind of core beers and experimental beers and we played around with a little bit of different marketing techniques but it was surprising that we had some of our what i call weird beers selling just as well as our ipa and so it was really encouraging to not necessarily give in to just making three or four ipas and we did what we knew we could sell and instead letting the experimental side get a little bit stronger than we had ever uh, originally planned and intended. It was great to see there were people out there that were interested in drinking more than was often being offered at most tap rooms.
0: I also saw an article in 2019 that you did with the Voyage Denver. And and by that point, you were like, yeah, we don't do flagships. Fuck that. We're just just experimental and fun. And so did – obviously, there's a lot going on here. But one of the questions is you opened in a rather neglected area of Denver. Uh, There were some breweries in the area at the time, but obviously grew dramatically. And and Rhino is one of the places you go in Denver to to bar hop at different breweries now. But how did the market change and did you respond to that market change by dumping the flagships or is that just artistically you were like, this is way more fun. I want to be this when I grow up.
1: Probably a little bit more of the latter. Yeah. I mean, uh, when we opened, it was like, okay, we got to pay our bills and make payroll and all that. So we knew the chunk of the menu had to be very approachable and have broader appeal. But yeah, as soon as we kind of got a little bit more confidence and saw that those beers we were worried about were selling. Yeah, like you said, we just kind of said, well, all right, well, then yeah, back to business plan, let's go for it. It slowly just kept getting to the weirder and weirder and more of the artistic side of brewing. And yeah, that was more and more rewarding. And so it just kind of snowballed on itself. And like I said, I was only ever interested in running a very taproom small local distribution model. So we didn't package here outside of doing, you know, growlers to go for the first couple of years um, and had good enough revenue coming through the taproom to, you know, really not focus on any outside sales. And we rode that as long as we could and adopted a model of we're not doing flagships as much as possible. We're not rebrewing anything. So Almost everything we did was a one-and-done beer, which was kind of a double-edged sword. It was hard to build a lot of momentum or uh, marketability behind the brand because, as soon as the beer kicked, you'd get a bunch of people coming in and say, "Oh no, that was my favorite! Like, when is that coming back?" It's like, "Oh, probably never. Maybe something like it, but we just have this new one instead." You know, so it was always new beers when you came in, but you may never get to try the beer you liked again. So it probably hampered the long-term success in a little bit in that there wasn't a beer or a package we were really marketing it was really just trying to keep like the brand name strong and with every beer we did uh we had to execute and it didn't leave a lot of room for error and that with every new beer it was you know kind of waiting to see on the back end of it what we had and it worked Uh, surprisingly well you know like i said it was a lot of credit to justin at the time uh he he just knew his stuff and it was it was nice that we could do the those more tech beers and those more guesses in the dark as far you know when you go out and pick 80 pounds of dandelions (laughs) when you're throwing them in the beer you're like i mean i I don't know what contribution this is really going to give you know you can do it on a small scale but five gallons doesn't translate to 500 very well all the time so you know having a competent person alongside me that was on the same page was a huge benefit to what we were trying to do but yeah as far as the overall success of the brewery probably would have been good to try and do at least one or two kind of beers that we could build a little bit of base and long-standing fandom behind but we were just having a good time rotating the menu fully and that let us get more into the brewing i wanted to do using very seasonal fresh ingredients being hyper local Getting to really drive unique characteristics into the beer, you know, lots of terroir and lots of flavors that weren't available anywhere else. So not being committed to constantly putting out packaged beer or a beer, being beholden to one channel of beers was uh, uh, pretty freeing. But yeah, probably long term, not the best advisable move
0: Well, there's definitely different opinions on different sides, but I did an interview with Michael from Adina distributing in Ohio, and they primarily sold one-offs and, you know, the the hype beers, and, and he said that that did well for him. Now, granted, he, he's closed, so that's more why he's on the show, but that that did really well for him, but I, in my opinion… The distribution model is slightly different in the sense that they make 30 points on basically everything. So, it almost doesn't matter what it is as long as the consumer buys it quickly. But as a producer, there's this learning curve, which you mentioned. You had a good guy who could really figure out some of those, you know, recipes that one didn't previously exist in 18 different places online, but also… The other side of that is from a financial perspective, I feel like you can't source ingredients in the same way. A, a lot of what goes into those is going to be way more labor intensive, gum up the mash ton type things. You put all this shit in there. Did you feel like, I mean, and, and I say this as a guy who was completely artistic as well. And in 2017, I went full farmhouse. So all sour. Yeah.
1: yeah. We all know why that
0: didn't work. But did you notice or do you now, now looking back, do you feel like some of those beers might Have been more expensive than what you were selling, and maybe, maybe that is an angle that you should consider as a new brewer, considering copying the mockery model.
1: Yeah, yeah, like you said, yeah, man. The thing I learned more than anything over the long term was controlling costs, and you know, we would get into a handful of beers where on paper it worked, but the real world logistics of some of them just drove cost and labor and everything else up to the point where, yeah, but you're losing money on every pint. Um, and that that was some business decision too, because we had, you know, like Crooked stave in the neighborhood selling $1. fifty per ounce pours, you know, for some of their high end stuff that they were, you know, doing something that nobody else was. But I mean, it, it was a tough hurdle for me to and ask for that much money Over our bar, I didn't want to position ourselves where people had to think about the money they were spending when they walked in. I think over the 10 years we were operating, we maybe raised price a dollar per pint, somewhere around there. So
0: you guys were like six at the end, kind of on average for a pint? Yeah, probably around seven on average. Okay. Well, that was was Um, five when you opened, which I thought was like incredibly low for the area. But also, we did the same thing. I raised prices. Probably eight times, literally over the nine years, because we just started too low.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was was always kind of our problem is like, you know, when we would do these small increases, lots of the just regulars and everybody's like, what what the hell is this? Like, you know, we're not making cheap here. We've been uh, uh, selling it that way. But uh, yeah, we're putting more into it than uh, we're getting out of it.
0: Did you guys do distribution at all? And if so, because can you self-distribute in Denver? And honestly, I don't know that. And then if you didn't, did you go with a distributor and why?
1: You can self-distribute in Colorado. Actually, the uh, car pretty beer-friendly law, legal-wise. You know, I spent time around like half acre when I out in Chicago and saw the bigger distribution models. And my time at Coors, kind of saw what it takes to run that machine, especially with, Kind of our shifting business model and doing fully rotating menu distribution was kind of the last thing I wanted to get into. We didn't have a salesperson, a delivery person at all. We would do maybe five to ten kegs a week to local bars and restaurants, and those were mostly places that we had new people at or you know had a relationship with them. So nobody was going out and trying to sell the beers. You know, as calls came in, uh, we'd say, "Yeah, we can get you drive it over that week." Yeah, outside sales was really never a focus. I'd say we were about five years in when we finally did have a sales guy that we tried it out. But we were, uh, <laughs> you know, we're the hardest company in the world to work for as a salesperson. <laughs> you know, we don't really package hardly anything at that point. I think we were doing a Solera sour barrel series so uh every now and then we'd have 50 cases uh sour bombers to sell or some big weird barrel aged beer we'd bottle off every now and then but yeah it was really uh most you know 90 plus percent draft well, I very little effort put into uh marketing or you know getting a sales and distribution side of it put together so uh, our sales guy did well but uh you know yeah he couldn't go in with a flyer saying these are your options because it would change by the next week, and he had very little kind of ammo in his belt to go and hit the market with. So uh, that kind of fizzled out, and we left outside sales alone for another couple years, and then wasn't up until you know the pandemic and getting shut down, and all of our draft accounts getting shut down. That we're like, okay, well now we have to shift. That uh, we ended up getting a little gosling canning line and uh, signed on with small little boutique Distributed but actually come and talked to us a couple years before and were interested in that, adding us. So we had a little bit of a working relationship with them. But yeah, I mean, if it weren't for the necessity that the pandemic created in distribution, I would have avoided it.
0: Well, so many people decided that when they wanted to go to package that they didn't want to buy a canning line, they wanted to use mobile canning. And I spend about eight pages in my book talking about why it's a terrible idea. Why did you not consider it? Because um, I do recommend buying a canning line if you're going to can. I'm not yeah, positive that's yeah, the right answer, yeah. but...
1: Man, I, that was the thing is when I was doing kind of the all my feasibility work into canning and distribution, how narrow those margins were, how everything had to go right, and how there's just so much cost built into an operation like that, that to add any additional pieces like... Getting a mobile canning crew to come in to not be getting the, the absolute lowest price you could on cans and flats. And I mean, every penny added up pretty quick once you were talking about doing, you know, a couple pallets of beer. We did maybe one or two runs of mobile canning as we were waiting on our canning line to get set up to do a little bit of dipping our toes into the market with the cans. And It went well. We were kind of all in on at least doing a canning line, but I didn't want to stray from our original model any more than we had to. So we kind of went back to that original idea of, okay, let's do a couple of core beers and try and keep the menu as much as we could, fully rotating and seasonal and uh, one and dones. And we were kind of the choke point for our distribution. They did great. We went... Uh, I guess you could say statewide pretty quickly, but we just never gave them enough product to build. Um, You know, we gave them a pallet a week and that was what we could squeeze out of our little gosling canning line. And uh, without sacrificing more of our menu or more of our fermentation capacity to just doing packaged beers, that was kind of what we were willing to do. And luckily, you know, the distributor we had, uh, Colorado Craft, was great. We kind of just were open book with them and said, this is what we can give you for now. Maybe it'll change down the line, but that's going to be kind of it. And they did a really good job. We'd take whatever we could give them, and we're always asking for more. But just operationally, we didn't want to change what we were doing more than we had to and kind of reluctantly send out product. But uh, it did get it through those couple of years, and uh, slowly, you know, we'd, we'd get more people Coming into the tap room saying, Oh, I live out on the other side of the state. And, you know, we're driving through, but we just got your beer in our, you know, neighborhood liquor store and, you know, loved it. So we came by the tap room. So it was paying a little bit better dividends than we had originally planned on. But yeah, kind of thought it the whole way, just didn't fit into what I wanted to be doing on the production side. And at that point, so Justin, our head brewer, when we opened, stuck around for about, I want to say it was about four years, then got an opportunity to go through somewhere else and couldn't blame him for that. They were going to pay him more. And He earned it. So we, you know, said congrats and sent him on his way, but had uh, another guy, Woody, Jason Woody, who was from day one bartending with us, but had been spending more time back in production, just trying to help out wherever he could. And he kind of expressed some interest in uh, being on the production side. So uh, we spent time, you know, the last handful of months, Justin was around training him up and he took over and was our brewer until we closed. So we were uh, across the board. We were incredibly lucky. Uh, With the people we employed. Most of them, almost everyone we had worked for years here, which uh, was a blessing. Yeah, so for the last handful of years, we were in distribution. Woody more or less kind of ran the production side, and I ran the packaging distribution side. So, I mean, he was brewing and doing all the cellar work and cleaning and everything else on the production side, and I was doing all the packaging, and man, it it got to the point where, yeah, it was sneaking away from us and we were ending up spending all of our time just plugging away at the machine instead of going back and doing the beers that we were passionate about.
0: Uh, When when we went to package, we went to small, like 12-ounce bottles, and so we used a Maheen forehead filler. We used it probably a little over two years, and I was still learning (laughs) <laughs> tweaks and torques about it towards the end. So, a lot mm-hmm. of people, when they think of packaging, they're just like, oh, well, shit, we'll throw some stuff in bottles and send it to the distro. But talk about that learning curve from, I know how to make beer, I know how to fill kegs, and all of a sudden, you've got counter pressure, you've got temp controls, you've got O2 pickup. Like, there's just so much to think about on the packaging side. Did, did you have any wins and misses on there that you want to talk about?
1: Uh, yeah, it, it scared the piss out of me getting into it, especially with some of the beers where heavily fruited beers that. We knew we wanted some kind of residual fruit and sweetness in there, so it's not like they were fermenting out to zero. <laughs> and you know, we had having never packaged them, and we weren't running it through a filter or centrifuge or anything. You know, it was uh, throwing fruit beer into a package and you know, saying hopefully we got it to the place where it's stable. But yeah, man, there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of worrying about uh, exploding package and just all the kinds of different problems we had and we had been lucky enough that wild goose is kind of across town and had uh some kind of just industry friends that had moved their way up there were able to steer us in the right direction they along the way helped out at a time and were always on hand to drive a park down or tell them to help troubleshoot stuff with us but yeah we got kind of one of the early beta versions of their gauzing machine so they were able to come in and do canning runs with us and adjust on the fly and you know update the machines they were putting out so there's a nice collaborative relationship that helped smooth out that path a lot yeah we like you said yeah i mean up until uh we shut it off our canning line was a, a living machine that never behaved the same way twice but yeah, i got real intimate and speaking its language and uh you know we had frankenstein some pieces and parts on there that made it functional but yeah i mean the way we did it is good for doing really small stuff but yeah as your main production through it, it you can go talk to somebody. that's doing more successful
0: than we ever did. Uh, let's take a quick break and we come back. I want to hear a little bit about sort of where the turn happened and some of the struggles, which I'm sure were along the way, but towards the end, kind of the big ones and what you guys did to combat it. If he were interested in anything, his old dad was interested in. My son would say it's something like, "Y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile." Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach. But don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at m2mcomms, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came here to learn how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. The BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up, or down, and you know the stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbiz.com right now, creating your account, and connecting with the equipment you need. So get smart, get brewbiz, and get busy making beer. All right, I appreciate you sticking in there and going through all of this. I, for one, have enjoyed the startup. I'm a twisted and crazy individual. So now I'm really also looking forward to hearing the struggles for some reason. So, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about, uh, I guess, first of all, let's talk about how the growth went. So, from 2014 for everyone, 2020 to 2021 is a a bit of a nutshell, but what did the production growth look like? And you don't have to pull a graph, but just, you know, in your head, was it up every year? Did you have some down years? Was there a best year?
1: Um, no. Just with our size, kind of from the start, we were doing uh, a pretty healthy, I'd say about 75, 80% of our production capacity, more or less, yeah, through the tap room and small outside draft sales, and that just kind of fit us that gave us a little leeway if we had a lager some giant weird beer that needed two months of tank time that we had that buffer so we saw little amounts of growth but it wasn't something we were chasing or handle a lot of for those first handful of years you know we were making money and uh you know able to keep bumping you know pay up for our people and it we were kind of just riding smooth. And, you know, like I said, this was always kind of passion project more than a straightforward business, at least for me. And that, I never had any aspirations of growing it into a big brewery or a big revenue machine. So, kind of as long as we were paying our bills and we were. We were offering, you know, raises and still putting away a little bit of money, then I was happy. Like I said, it allowed us to stay kind of in the zone where we had total creative control and we weren't beholden to um, a lot of other responsibilities that were outside of our control. And limiting the scope of what we were doing kept us. Uh, on this uh, really lean, small side, which seemed to work, you know, it was me and one other guy in production and forever and five or six bar rotating bartenders that were with us for years and years. You know, we had just a small family that worked really efficiently and we just never had any need to grow it really. You know, having not foreseen the downturns and the struggles that were on the horizon, um, I would say that it was nearsighted. And build in a buffer for those years of hardship and struggle that eventually did eat away uh, the bank and everything else. But yeah, we kind of maintained close to the upper limits of our fermentation capacity and never added any capacity outside of you know doing a batch in barrels every now and then. We kind of just maintained at that like 80% of uh, fermentation capacity year over year.
0: Which is definitely different than a lot of people choose because for a lot of people, growth is at all costs. If you're not growing, you're dying. It's a shark mentality. And so I would assume that you're just a different personality. And from talking to you, I think that might be the case that that just wasn't your goal necessarily – but like you said, looking back, where was the bottleneck? Could you have easily fit an additional fermenter in there, or what could you have done differently?
1: Yeah, once we started playing around with those ideas, man, we came up with a lot of goofy workarounds. At one point, we were talking about contract brewing somewhere. The logistics around adding tanks on site here were pretty tough. I mean, um, like I said, we were always kind of underutilized on space from day one, having to really sandwich everything in so we had surprisingly built the production side out as well as i could have hoped uh i was always worried that everything was going to be too cramped and it was, the flow through the production area was going to be rough but um because we were able to keep you know the production team down to me and one other person um and we worked just so efficiently together it worked out really well but yeah there wasn't a whole lot of space there was no space to add in more fermentation capacity and even the small little stuff we had done you know adding in a gosling just little pieces here and there filled in the small amount of free space we did have so um we Toyed around with adding outdoor fermentation and dealing with losing some patio space. And yeah, it just looked at shipping containers so we could store offside. I mean, all kinds of bad ideas. Yeah, I instead, just decided that we were going to put kind of a cap on what we could produce and, for better or for worse, see where we could get with that. Kind of afraid of chasing bad money with good. And I think, you know, had we put, I don't know, another million dollars into the building and built you know, we just moved a wall back another 30 feet. We could have uh, increased both tap room capacity and fermentation capacity, which both would have drastically changed the operations, but the longevity of the brewery. We were kind of already uh, after the last couple of years stretched to where we wanted to be as far as what we were doing, and already having to make the compromises of what we had been to what we had to do to stay open. And any more compromises would have put it out of the realm of something we were interested in doing anymore.
0: Yeah. And I think uh, I put capital in like three times. I didn't want to, but at the end of the day, I wish I hadn't. So what didn't, in that situation, what changed? So you've, you're basically at 80% capacity, kind of producing a fixed amount of beer throughout the years. And then did that drop off? Did you switch from more profitable over-the-counter beer to distribution beer like where did the model start to break down and, and when like what what happened
1: yeah i mean uh, uh it could point to anything well it, it's hard to clearly point to
0: anything
1: other than the pandemic was you know obviously through uh, a whole set of problems the, into every facet of business, that was just kind of a crazy time to. They piled on top of other stuff. We had been lucky enough through a random set of events to travel to Tibet with a group of brewers through a program at the University of Virginia and do some kind of brewer training out in Tibet, which was really cool. But that was like we came back right at the new year of 2020, so you know I think there was a couple of cases of COVID and the u.s at that time but yeah i mean we were more or less in a wuhan wet market <laughs> the week before and came back to uh, everything getting shut down so uh you know we were already you know kind of behind and playing these other games and then yeah i got thrown into that whole shitstorm, storm and we spent uh, you know every morning woody and i at the bar watching the local news to figure out what the governor was going to say that day and whether we were open that day or whether we operate or, you know, it was just a day-to-day thing for a while. And then eventually that lasted long enough. They were like, okay, we got to sell beer somehow, but it's all just sitting here. Um, and that kind of got us into more and more of the distribution talks. And uh, that just kind of slowly, you know, I was like trying to hold on to our original idea, ideas it just over time we couldn't hold on to it. And it, kind of kept eroding away from us.
0: Did you see tap room volume decline? Like just that people were going out less and, and, and more importantly, did it ever recover back to 2019 numbers?
1: Yeah, from uh, kind of what we saw out in the market and customer trends and everything like that, it's really hard to say anything concretely. I would say uh, as a whole and people I talk to in the industry, it doesn't seem like it ever came back 100% what it was before, or at least what the Denver area is seeing in tap rooms. Um, why is a 100 different particles and you know, Bart Watson's got plenty of reasons. And we had our own uh, specific problems, you know, especially right around then, the neighborhood. Just I mean in full swing of development and construction. So I mean, every single property around us was getting changed from a elected dilapidated fifties warehouse to a twelve story, very modern condo apartment or bistro food hall. So Um, I mean, the neighborhood was a gigantic construction zone. So, you know, it was a a handful of years where access even to us was very limited, which as a tavern model really threw kind of a a screw into what we were doing. You had to park three blocks away and walk in to get to us in a lot of situations. You know, there'd be so many detours and side streets people would give up because there's also 10 other breweries within two miles of us. So, uh, you know, instead of (laughs) struggling and fighting traffic and road detours and closures, you had to, you know, and meanwhile driving past other great breweries, we just saw our numbers go down. Even when We couldn't directly point at that being the problem. Why, I don't know, but it did seem like the tavern numbers never quite
0: got back to pre-pandemic numbers for one reason or another. One question that people love to disagree with me on, and I'm really curious your opinion, because you happen to be in one of the dentists, dentist (laughs) the densest populated brewery areas of anyone I've talked to you. And I'm not picking on your head brewer because he's a different guy. He's a different role in the industry. He's not an owner. He doesn't pay the rent. But in 2019, he said, which you hear this a lot, that there's more people walking around the neighborhood now, especially the well-dressed developer types. He said, I'm indifferent to the new breweries moving in. As long as they produce a great quality product, it is good for all of us because I can foresee a time when Rhino will become the Napa Valley of Crap Beer. I could not disagree more. Any seats within a block of your place is competition for the seat in your place. And so the more seats you have, sure, it makes the experience better. And especially when you go from two breweries to five, but when you go from five to 15 changes the entire of the conversation where in my opinion, you're in competition. So curious, how much did you see that affect maybe some of that traffic that you dealt with as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's uh, always been my kind of contention that it, it was a question when we opened with I think two other breweries, Relatively close to us. Is it oversaturated in the market right now? And for a good long time, my answer was no. And the very similar response as long as they're making good beer, especially coming from where I kind of my brewing history, so much of it was the broad. Education side of it, and just trying to get people into the realm of what I call flavorful beer. You know, uh, when people would walk in, so often they be like, "Oh, I didn't know you could put that in beer. Or you could make a beer that way." Having other breweries that were bringing beer people into the neighborhood, even you know if they were just doing all loggers or they were very IPA centric, was completely fine by us it kind of validated that small breweries could be making as good if not better beer than the big guys and so much of my brewing history was just trying to get people to accept flavor. beer was more than the macro lagers that everyone grew up with and so i was of the mentality that if there's a small producer making flavorful beer and they're making it well somewhere around us they're bringing people into our customer base and we were just trying to you know kind of the the high tide raises all ships idea then when we had blue moon and great divide bookending us on our 100 yard street it did start to become more of a conversation of okay we are deluding ourselves i mean there's no way that the this side of the neighborhood that didn't have other restaurants and bars or foot traffic had now three breweries two of them with big huge nationally recognized brand names on the street that opened up big facilities i mean there was just yeah a lot more seats than there were customers all of a sudden and it was kind of a double edged sword cuz we got to know especially their taproom people and their production side people well at both those spots and them having big national recognition and being on kind of the highway in the airport and downtown for every event that was big in denver great american beer fest other you know music festivals and stuff They were big tourist traps, but then they would send a lot of people our way. So I can't say it was all bad. But yeah, I mean, by the time there was a dozen breweries within a mile of us, it definitely, you know, we were all more or less doing all right. But yeah, as each new place opened up, seed numbers slowly trending down. Uh, I think, yeah, it was just the maturation of the industry and the market. That as we kind of validated the industry and a lot of people feel more comfortable walking into any given tap room and be able to get good beer, it became less important to go to a specific tap
0: room. Yeah, the, the popularity yeah. of it almost shoots us in the foot and makes it worse. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. Too much success is a bad thing. Well, so when did that change start to happen for you? And obviously, if we've discussed anything in this podcast, we've discussed that a career in craft beer is always fraught with pivots and expensive changes and $1,000 parts going out. But when was it where you were like, okay, shit, this has changed and I've got to fight. Like, what what was the big turning point?
1: I would say when we started getting, we were actively turning down opportunities for a long while. Maintain our focus on what we were doing, what we wanted. As soon as we could no longer afford to say no, um, we had to start saying yes to kind of any opportunity that came our way, whether it was beer fest or event, we could... Host or paid in, or just uh, it it took a lot more hustle to, I guess, keep being weird and not trying, not aiming at profitability.
0: Do you know when, maybe, or two years ago, or nineteen?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was probably right around
0: twenty nineteen going forward. You know, just like
1: I said, the 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 local brewery scene had. It seemed like matured enough where there was, I mean, just no uh, shortage of breweries. Anybody that was making even mediocre beer kind of either had to totally retool and restructure, and had been doing a lot better, or they were gone by that point. And so the health of the breweries and what was available to the public was at an all-time high. So it just took more hustle to you could uh, you couldn't be just a niche idea anymore because there was two or three other breweries that were doing the same thing by that time you had to go out and hustle more and um we were willing to absolutely go out and hustle and participate and work harder to maintain the same thing we were doing but as soon as we had to thought doing those kind of passion projects and the weird stuff and do what we knew was going to be profitable instead of so, of what we wanted to do it kind of yeah it took a lot of the soul and uh, heart out of woke.
0: yeah you hear that a lot and i went through that and if you know judd over at dos Luces, says he that's exactly he was like dude i could have pivoted i knew what i needed to do i had it written down and i was like i don't want to <laughs> work in that brewery i'm not doing it <laughs> yeah,
1: that's exactly what it was yeah I, yeah i could I would point to a whole lot of stuff we could have done differently or, uh, you know, circumstances I wish were different or, you know, but, but yeah, all along the way, we knew very well, well, we could do this and it would make us more profitable or long term sustainable. But yeah, it, it was, it, it would have, change fundamentally what we were doing into something that none of us were interested in doing
0: yeah no i agree let's take a quick break when we come back i want to hear some of the things you tried like like how you tried to you know expand distribution and or get more butts and teats in your tasting room um obviously some of those didn't work but i'm just curious what what maybe did work for you so let's uh go run around the block real quick and we'll come right back and hear all about that Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president, Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers, Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right. Well, thanks for sticking with us. I am very excited to hear kind of what's going to happen here. Everybody tries different things. Some are dumb. Some are great. Some other people have tried and they didn't work. But, you know, from you said 2019 is when you had to sort of work harder at it. What are some things that you guys tried to drive revenue or to drive people to the brewery or compete with your competitors? I don't know. Like, what did you do?
1: I had to work a lot harder Especially, uh, you know, 2020 on a pandemic to fill up the tap room, it seems. So, you know, it was a lot more coordination with our tap room staff and uh, our tap room manager and one, uh, just you know, putting butts in seats, especially in the tap room. So we started doing a lot more group events, more kind of theme nights, trivia nights, a lot more just outreach than we'd ever done before. Yeah. Again, I, you know, held the kind of production side and the beers in this realm of things I didn't want to change or I was unwilling to change. So it really narrowed how capable we were to adapt to the struggles we were seeing. Best was not interested in running and owning a brewery that wasn't doing what I wanted to do on a daily basis or on a broad scale. Uh, you know, there was easy outs. We get double, triple distribution almost overnight. And, you know, I think if we had plowed money into an expansion on site and added seating and maybe even like a small little food option, that would have massively helped out. But we were kind of at a point where, especially in the neighborhood, the, the, <laughs> the owning the property is uh, going to be what ends up giving us the ability to walk away with a little bit of money at the end of the day. But it's also one of the major reasons of. Us having it, it was pushing us to have to drive up revenue as the neighborhood exploded in popularity and development, so did our property taxes. And <laughs> not doing anything on the business side to address that, you know, it's just our cost side of the balance sheet going up and not a lot else changing. Man, there was a, a big beers festival that uh, one of my good buddies, Sam Myers, who runs Strange, strange Craft Brewing in the city with us it was on a panel. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. something about, you know, how to start a brewery or how to run a brewery kind of thing. But, I mean, it was a, a handful of guys. He was sitting next to the same college he owned. I mean, it, it, uh, he was the no-name kind of local guy they threw on the panel. And he just mod the floor with them. It was awesome. He, he gave most tangible advice, and it was a very executable the next day you went into the brewery and it wasn't a whole bunch of big loft marketing department ideas and and to say this was probably eight nine years ago and this day like still resounds with me is uh you know on a daily basis if you're not controlling your costs and knowing exactly what you're spending it'll eat you up and you know he's like you know how much beer do you gotta sell to go buy a pack of pencils and you, If you don't know that answer, then you're losing that battle. And just gave so much good advice that, uh, that kind of, towards the end, became my mantra instead of changing a whole lot of what we're doing on the revenue side. It was a lot more on the cost control side and just kind of making us more efficient and lean to be able to maintain our kind of ethos and what we were doing philosophical side more than making us a more profitable company. And it worked for a handful of years, but yeah, there's only so much you can do to cut cost as other costs are just going out. We were unwilling to sacrifice the quality of hop and malt we were getting. or we paying premiums on some of that stuff. Very easily could have just gone to a Canadian barley that was 20% cheaper than what we were paying and uh, arguably may not have had a huge impact on the tail end of the beer, but we were working with uh, root shoot malts and uh, they but in our opinion, we're just doing the best product available on the market and being able to personally know those guys, people and just what high quality people they were. And that it was a local product, you know, it was Colorado grown barley and wheat and rye. And, they, you know, the malsters were working the farm. So uh, the, the, the whole build out just very much married with uh, what we were doing and the passion we had. Um, for it and the fact that we could say we're using colorado products made by colorado farmers it was fit very much into our ethos you know we got just real lean in every area that we could but we unwilling to kind of negotiate on some stuff that would have made a difference for sure
0: what didn't sound like from talking to you and like looking at what you guys did that you were overbuilt or like overspending in massive ways like but obviously, every little bit makes a difference. So kind of what areas did you earmark? Do you were able to cut costs? Some of those ones that we were able to were surprising, even just cleaning supplies that you've, you had to buy larger quantities. That's great. It, but if it takes me six months to close it out, it's not great. Yeah,
1: I mean, it was uh, just weird little stuff. Getting creative with what we were offering, you know, it just ended up being, I guess, some more so simpler beers you know we went from making saffron infused beers to <laughs> we, we did a long series of uh, foraged ingredients i thought that'd be a uh, one that really well i i, I loved going out and uh, uh, it felt like putting nature into the beer and had the benefit of you know zero upfront cost for that ingredient but yeah i mean it was like the things you said the un- Sexy things that where we were getting, you know, stickers printed, if they were a couple pennies cheaper, you know, the stuff that would add up as we were buying bulk and just any, any bit of operation we could take and say, this isn't fundamental to the product we're producing. Can we make it less expensive? And just kept nicking away at the stuff we could cut kind of costs on. And, yeah, eventually it got to a point where it was like, okay, we're, we're really I'm starting to you know, the breweries, the parts of it were being held together by duct tape. And, you know, if, if something went wrong, it really threw a wrench into a whole bunch. It cascaded a lot faster through other kind of, departments and the areas of operation so it it, it just got squirrely we were working twice as hard to keep costs down and it just wasn't sustainable
0: yeah so you guys just closed here and you announced it previously but when did you kind of start seeing the writing on the wall and then how long before you sort of knew like there's kind of point of no return in a sense i
1: would say probably about A year ago, it was the uh, come-to-Jesus moment of something either seriously has to change or we have to start planning an exit strategy. But, uh, we have looked at a couple of different options, including, you know, like a partnership with another company to come in and split some of our property with us that we could kind of figure out a way to have a symbiotic relationship. With. It would it help us? It help them for, you know, food or an event space that we could rent out our uh, extra building to or uh, just a large onsite expansion, then we really tackle distribution and try and increase revenue that way. But yeah, the way, as we kind of looked at everything, it felt like it, it had a lot of the same feeling as when we were in our opening days of uncertainty and large scale investment in we just figured we didn't have the guts or the, the gas in the tank to do it eventually our uh, head brewer Woody kind of started talking about moving back home the cost of living in Denver was just too high and family reasons to move back home and it was like well you know he'd been the head brewer for the past five or six years and when. It was him and I every day in here during the entire production side of the business. And it just didn't make sense to try and start over with somebody else and go through that whole process as we were kind of trying to figure out if we had anything left in us to keep it going. So it was a big
0: culmination of things that kind of added up to uh, I was just. College. did you pick august for any specific reason was there some bill that had been paid off or was it, is it typically your summer months are better right mm-hmm. so you, yeah i mean yeah
1: for sure uh, we yeah usually we kind of planned uh, our anniversary party was always in november and it was like okay let's make it to that next anniversary party that's kind of the very yeah, i mean the, past the height of yeah the summer season We like, we get through great american beer fest which for any Denver Murray's is a nice cash bump for a couple of weeks. And then, yeah, close up in November. But as we were looking forward and uh, especially kind of the exit strategy stuff, I mean, we, we were paying a, a good chunk in property taxes and everything else and realized that if we didn't have kind of the closing sale and exit completed by the calendar year end, we'd get into next year's taxes and everything else. So we wanted to give ourselves enough time to get it shut down, cleaned up, marketed, sold, and everything like that by the end of the year. So that kind of pushed us just Further
0: up in the year, we talk about this all the time on the show. Most breweries kind of fall into two different camps: either don't talk about it, just close the doors and walk the hell away, or you know, make a almost like an Irish wake for it. And yeah, yeah, which I prefer. But uh, you guys chose clearly to talk about it in advance, and then I thought kind of cool on online you celebrated Mm -hmm. the individual people that kind of helped and I'm sure helped them get their next job or whatever. But how did those conversations go behind closed doors? Were you guys unanimous about let's let's Air this out in the public and get some support, or were there's some like I don't want to talk about it, I'm embarrassed, I want to hide, like, and there's no right answer. I'm just curious.
1: No, uh, I've always felt like I was incredibly proud of what we're doing, and I absolutely loved it. But hated to get any ego involved. I wanted to, uh, I, I, most of the staff can attest to, I try to hide from the public as much as anybody around here. So there wasn't a whole lot of ego in saying, uh, I, you know, I failed or this is my fault or anything. It, in so many ways, absolutely was. And was a very, a, a series of decisions that were very consciously made that led us to closing. But the best parts of the, the, the most rewarding parts of the brewery and what Will be the hardest part to walk away from was so much the community, the people and the businesses that we had worked with over the years. There was just no way we couldn't say goodbye and make sure that we had the time to celebrate what it was and give our thanks to everybody that was a part of making it what it was.
0: So how was that closing day? Like, what did you guys do? Were there special tappings? Did you walk to the building naked? Like, what was uh, what was the pull for why to go check out mockery on the last day?
1: (laughs) Man, I, yeah, I don't know if you've gotten the advice yet on the show or having the book, but uh, yeah, anybody that's struggling out there, announce your closing in a month. It'll be, it'll be a real good month of sales. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was such a. A fun period. I mean, it was a, it was a fun dichotomy of uh, people walking in the door between family, friends and kind of regulars filled with condolences and good memories. But overall kind of sad to hear the news and see what was going on and that we weren't going to be around anymore. And then industry coming in and saying, Oh, you lucky bastard. I'm so, so it was a, it, uh, a, have a lot of bittersweet feelings to it. But yeah, especially that last weekend, it was like, like you said, a big, Irish Wake celebration, uh, everything it was. I mean, it, there's just so many goofy, crazy stories that we got to be a part of. And yeah, spend spent that time, you know, drinking old beers that have long since <laughs> gone bad and really, you know, just uh, telling all these, you know, hearing all the ridiculous stories and everything. It uh, it helped uh, at least our team, you know, feel good about uh, moving on and leaving it behind. That, uh, we, I always ran this place... For me, uh, as a passion project, and uh, never let it get into a period that I felt like I was working that accounting desk job. The fact that we got to do it as long as we did, and never take it seriously as a business and run it like a art project, was I, so few people get to experience that in any way, shape, or form. So the we got to do it for nearly a decade was, you know, at that point I was just kind of my blessings and happy to. Be have gotten to do it. And that, yeah, it got such a positive reflection back on us. You know, everybody over that last month, once we announced we were closing, it did make it easier to feel at peace with everything. But yeah, I didn't anything. We were just incredibly lucky to have gotten to goof around and make stupid beers for as long as we did because we wanted to and we thought it'd be fun and it hadn't been done before was so often our reason that it's, it, <laughs> there's, uh, there's lots of stuff we did that yeah looking back on it, it it was just silly good times but uh the fact that yeah we never got s- super stressed out or had to tell our soul to keep it going uh, uh
0: it was a nice thing to just be at peace with and walk away from do you have a favorite beer or a favorite memory necessarily from the years you had open
1: oh man that's such a tough one and we did, I, it was all of our, like, we did it in some of our successes that we never, we couldn't capitalize on were some of my parents we did a, uh, a goofball beer, uh, Brett the Hotman Man Heart, old 80s WWE wrestler, Brett the Hitman Heart, that uh, we were just nerdy fans of, and uh, like, I kind of reverse engineered the beer, so it was a Brett fermented heart sour IPA, uh, so... Brett Hotman Hart was the name of the beer. And uh, some of our awesome regulars, we made up a label with him on it and some of our regulars actually sent, tracked down Brett Hart and sent it up to him and Canada, and he threw it up on his Instagram, and uh, holy shit! I <laughs> like <laughs> sixty-year-old, well-retired uh, WWE wrestler. He's still got some fans. I mean, the after he went up on his Instagram, uh, all the entire world was calling, trying to get that beer. It's like dude, that was a six-month barrel fermented beer that we did like 20 cases of (laughs) like that it's never coming back and but yeah everywhere was calling trying to get that beer but as you know goofball stuff like that i really like just weird projects we drove beer across the united states uh having collaborated with some really good friends out at adroit theory in virginia brew beer out there with them and then put it in Open top barrels and open fermented it as we drove it back to Denver, parked it in some like pecan groves at night, you know, tried to let the terroir ferment the beer and uh, I just, uh, it, it, it. I was taking us, like I said, across the world to Tibet. We're going back to Tibet in November. The opportunities it's given us, people we've met, had, I mean, who spent days picking dandelions in fields, and there's nothing funnier than seeing, you know, Big Fat Brewer picking dandelions in a field all day, sweating his ass off. So, I mean, the, the goofy stuff we got to do will be the the stuff
0: that we'll remember. You want to talk about the final beer that you brewed? No, I forgot the name of it.
1: Yeah, uh, Farewell Fuckery. <laughs> yeah, it was a uh, just a goofy beer. Um, you know, we, we, we have tried to make it like a silly ode. you know, using it as a matchup of different recipes and ingredients and uh, suppliers. Stuff that we had loved over the years. But yeah, just a kind of kitchen sink goofball beer, giant double IPA with, a, I don't know, like seven different fruits. And
0: but like,
1: I, I want to say it was close. It was over, I think it was like almost three pounds of. Hops per barrel in it. I mean, I mean, that was a goofy beer, but it, it, it captured what we were for and did for so long.
0: Yeah, it was like the recipe of it, and like the list of the hops are on it. It was like forty-seven pages long. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> Clean out the cooler.
1: Found this <laughs> like a recipe we ever made for sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, so how how are you coming out on this? Um, obviously, everyone escapes from their brewery sentence in a different situations. You, you own the building. You are what trying to sell the whole thing as a turnkey? Is that where it's at?
1: Yeah, ideally, I mean, uh, just on the kind of nostalgic, emotional side of it, I'd love for somebody to step in and keep brewing here. We'll get that figured out as we start to market everything. Our fear is, you know, setting someone up in a situation we were in and couldn't make it work. I don't doubt that almost anybody that would step into it would be a more responsible business owner than I was. You know, I want to set somebody up for success. Yeah, it really feels like we're on the precipice of, like, you know, we've, our streets have been closed off for the last couple of years. But we've got almost every big project around us set to finalize by the end of the year. And um, we've spent 10 years in the neighborhood struggling through its total redevelopment and growth period but it really feels like all of that dust is starting to settle and you know a lot of the big apartment complexes and entertainment venues and restaurants and stuff are set to open by even like the end of the year and so um, i'd love to somehow have a thread to the neighborhoods that served on uh, neighborhood governmental boards and gotten to know the people and the businesses that are and have been here you know it definitely feels like we have some roots here that we'd love to continue but at the end of the day you have somebody walked in with the right number and just wanted to level everything (laughs) i'd have a tough time saying no
0: i am sure especially you get that on it too at some point you want to get it out there but so let's assume somebody comes in they're well capitalized or well enough and they have this idea for a brewery and they're going to open it up they close with you and you hand them the keys to the building what pieces of advice are you also going to hand them what do they got to know
1: yeah i would gee i just have like a clear idea of like the ethos the personality the direction of the brewery those are typically the people i've seen that are successful especially in the long term and can survive these periods of difficulty whatever the difficulty is that if you can kind of stay true to a ethos within the brewery or uh, uh, kind of guiding direction or philosophy it allows the public and uh, the average customer to connect and relate better and you know there's I mean limitless ways to do that uh, whether it's what product you're doing uh what you're doing outside of the product even just what your branding is I mean Scott Brewing's been one of my favorites forever Scott hasn't been popular for 15-20 years and they have stuck with it and haven't ever apologized for it and I think, yeah, having a reliable personality and direction to the brewery is uh, kind of one of those untangible things that is easy enough to write down in a business plan, but executing on it, it is much harder. And I think, yeah, we definitely have done better at putting that kind of spirit out there more than just providing the beer. Directly communicating who we were, what we were doing, and why we were doing it effectively, I think, could have been done better and is good advice for anybody starting out
0: part of the answer to the question i wanted to ask you to being in again one of the most densely populated brewery areas in the country uh, you guys in the greater denver area have lost a few this summer um like four or five and you're gaining by a five or six. And so ultimately some have lost, some have come in. You could make the argument some of the new ones coming in are a little more commercialized, like BrewDog and Four Noses, those kind of guys. But what do you think the difference is? Like is the people that have gone out versus the people that are coming in, from your perspective sitting in the market yourself, can you see a thread that the guys that left left for reason X and the guys coming in? like, Does it make sense or is it just just churn?
1: Ah, man, that's a great question. I would say the easy things to point to are you're not seeing the home brewer turn pro opening up as much around here anymore. The people that are opening up have very solid industry backgrounds and are just incredibly smart and talented as far as brewers and brewery people go. The margin of error is just so much lower for what you can do and be as a brewery. You know, a couple of slip ups may be enough to Do you in? Whereas you got away with regularly fucking up for years. You just got to run a lot tighter ship and be overly competent in everything you're doing. But I think just the way the industry is proliferated and the the resources that are available now, the ability and chops on the brewers that are starting now are so much higher than they were 15, 20 years ago, um, out of the gate. Yeah. Just the brews that are opening up are opening. At a level of expertise and execution that usually took years to get to. And yeah, it's just a lot tighter, more mature market out there that you can't be as uh, willy-nilly as we were.
0: True. Yeah, I would agree. Last question. I'll get you out of here and let you uh, get back on the rest of your life. But What do you want the legacy of Mocker to be now that you're on the podcast, and I'm going to use this information for the rest of my life. What, what yeah. do you want people <laughs> to remember about you, your team, and what you guys did there in uh, Rhino District of Denver?
1: There was an overall sense of passion behind it. Whether it was a bartender working a weekend that was a teacher during the week. We got super lucky with our people from day one. They were on board with everything we were doing, and I almost all of them stuck around for years on average which was a huge benefit to uh top to bottom everything we did everything that we put out was purely for the passion of it and, you know we worked our apps off all well to do what we were doing for better or for worse it, it almost always at the end felt like the harder you worked <laughs> the worse it would sell i mean whether it was you know going out and spending weeks collecting chanterelles to you know do a 10-gallon batch or something stupid, it, you know. I like they took more and more work for what we were getting out the back end. But, yeah, overall, yeah. if somebody could say mockery was uh, a place where there was a uh, heart behind the beer, that I would think would be pretty common and hopefully repeated through line.
0: Well, I definitely think that came through in the interview, and so... Um Appreciate you sharing. Trust me with the story for sure, but there was a lot there to, to learn and you, you have a different experience than some people. And so there were definitely some nuggets of wisdom in there. Hopefully by the time that this airs, you'll have already sold everything and moved on. But if you haven't, so you'll, I'll definitely link all that in the show notes and we'll have ways that people can share with their friends and hopefully get a new life in there so they can continue to still at least make beer in your building, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anybody wants to get a shot at at uh, Rhino Brewery, let me know. <laughs>
0: all right. <laughs> (laughs) Well, thanks again, and uh, best of luck on whatever's next, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around guys, what my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping in any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out email is easiest at free play kelly oh and if you're inclined to support the show there are a few ways you can go about that none better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book how not to start a damn brewery and last but never least you can support the businesses that have supported the show i truly hope this show has made you think made you feel and made you better at your career and of course i hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery Replay.
1: Media.